Hi, dance friends. I'm Margaret Fuhrer, editor and producer of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast, back with another interview episode. Please pardon my slightly froggy voice. It's definitely cold season. This week's conversation is about the great choreographer Agnes DeMille, whose narrative works, which celebrated a distinctly American spirit, really changed the whole course of American dance. And women, strong female characters, were often right at the center of the stories DeMille chose to tell. So you never really need an excuse to talk about Agnes DeMille, her influence is so profound, but this is perhaps an especially good moment to reflect on that influence, since Rodeo, probably the work with which she's most closely associated, recently celebrated its 80th birthday, and we are also approaching the 30th anniversary of DeMille's death. We are really lucky to have not one, but two experts joining us in this episode to talk about the enduring relevance of DeMille's work, and in particular about her groundbreaking female characters. Kathleen Moore, a former American Ballet Theatre principal, danced in many of DeMille's ballets and worked with her directly, which you'll hear more about. Linda Murray is the curator for the Jerome Robbins Dance Division at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Both Moore and Murray will be part of an upcoming program at the library exploring Agnes DeMille and the female narrative. And they were also just the dreamiest podcast guests. They have such deep knowledge of DeMille and her work and her life and personality. Here they are. Kathleen and Linda, hello. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank Thank you for having us. Um, Actually, before we begin, would you mind just each briefly saying hello in your name so listeners can put names to voices? Hello, my name is Linda Murray, and I am the curator of the Jerome Robbins Dance Division at the New York Public Library. And I'm Kathleen Moore, and I was a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater, who had the privilege of dancing several of Agnes's ballets. Yes. Yep. And yep. So we're, of course, here today to talk about the inimitable Agnes DeMille. So actually, I'm wondering if you could start by each describing your relationships to DeMille, either personal relationships, Kathleen, I know you worked with her directly, or through research and scholarship. My first introduction to Agnes was actually seeing, hearing her speak at uh, Lucia Chase's memorial service, I believe it was at City Center. And I was new to um, American Ballet Theater's big company. I'd been in their second company before. And she blew me away with her articulation and her humor and just even her posture as she was speaking of this longtime um friend, nemesis, supporter, detractor, Uh, you know, they had a complicated relationship from what I could tell, but there was a lot of respect there. So that was when I met her. And then in 1987, I believe, Misha had commissioned Agnes to do a new work. After he had worked with her in Three Virgins and a Devil in 83, she was pushing to do a new work, not just set Rodeo again or another um, of her former works. And so they worked it out and um, she brought in some of her dancers that she had been working on this idea of um, pulling dances from uh, a failed work, Juno. And um, she had been working on stuff. She came in, they came in and we began to put together the informer. Then 
after the informer, I was given the privilege of dancing the cowgirl. And then later on, I was in Fall River Legend, both as young Lizzie's mother and then as Lizzie herself. And I did work with Agnes on all three. Informer, of course, being the most collaborative as she sat in her wheelchair and and gave direction. And then um, personally, I think... um, At the time that she was creating this, um, it was a time in my life where I think she saw some similarities. Well, first she saw that we both had red hair and blue eyes, and we had not had the traditional ballerina kind of career. Um, Even though I was at ABT and did classical things, I was more in the contemporary and and the dramatic and the character parts. So I think she felt an affinity about that. And um, then I was about to get married and... um, she, I think, always a romantic at heart, loved that. And I would go to her apartment occasionally and she would be, um, usually she was just in bed on the times I went there and she would tell me stories of, you know, her grandfather, Henry George, and she gave me a book and then um, and talked a lot about her husband, Walter, um, who had recently passed away and how devastated she was from that. And um She gave me a wedding veil to wear for my wedding, which I unfortunately couldn't wear because it was the wrong shade and I was not returning the wedding dress, but just always was someone demanding, but positive to work with. She didn't, she didn't crush you. And then she was just, uh, just fantastic to work with. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry, Linda. I think it's fine that your answer was long, you knew Agnes, uh, which I'm very jealous of, because Agnes is one of my absolute favorite people to read writing about dance. Um, She was an absolutely incredible writer and describes the process of dancing better than almost anybody else I can think of. But I, I have had to experience her humor and her wit and her intellect secondhand. Uh, although the wonderful thing about archives is that it's written in her her own voice. It's her letters, it's her notes, her choreographic ideas sketched by herself. So you do get a window into her mind. But my professional relationship with Agnes is through being the curator who takes care of her archive, which is placed here at the dance division. And I did not see any of her ballets until I was an adult because I grew up in Ireland. So my only window into her choreography until I was in my 20s was the film Oklahoma. So I came to her work uh, much later in life than I think most people in America would. I I think many people experience Agnes in early life because she defined Americana, uh, certainly for a generation. And her, although many of her works have fallen out of repertory, I think there's still a DNA of how Agnes DeMille defined America that we see in ballet today. Yeah, that actually, that's essentially my next question, because there has been a lot said about how DeMille helped create a new, you know, quote unquote, American form of of ballet, of dance, narrative ballet in particular. Can you each talk a little about why her work is seen that way, and then how she herself described her goals in that vein, since that's something she she talked and wrote about quite a bit? Uh, Well, I think, you know, both Agnes and Martha Graham, uh, with Rodeo and Appalachian Spring, respectively, which were both obviously composed by Copeland. And it's interesting that Justin Peck has just recently revisited that same music 
the third ballet that's hanging out there is Eugene Loring's Don't Be the Kid. Um, but I think with Appalachian Spring and Rodeo, there was a, a vision of America that both of those women were aspiring toward that was about freedom and expanse and possibility. And the cowgirl in Rodeo is also, I think, in a way, it, it's Agnes entering a man's world. It's, it's as a, a female choreographer, as somebody with agency within the field of ballet, rather than somebody performing the repertory of somebody else. I always look at when she, she when she mounts the horse and she stumbles around and then she gains mastery of it. I always feel like that's Agnes trying to tell us, like I, I'm finding my footing and I know my way around here. So I, I think Agnes was aspirational about what America could be and the opportunity it could provide. And of course, she was uh, choreographing alongside uh, a lot of immigrant artists in those early years in ballet theater. Um, she was alongside a lot of displaced Russians who had fled World War II. So America was a haven. America was a space where immigrants could come and start their life anew. So there was this sense of America providing this creative space and this opportunity for people to, to reinvent themselves and to forge the life that they wanted. Uh, and I think she found that exciting artistically and it, it gave her a propulsion into some of her choreographic ideas. But Kathleen, she probably voiced much of this to you in, in the room in more direct terms. You know, I was always given this sense um, that it was about uh, this American ideal, um, I know she she talked about, and she does in her in her books as well, about um, the time period, right? And where, you know, her original idea for Rodeo was based on her experience as um, going to a dance in Colorado in 1935 on a ranch, and 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 seeing this this life, this sense of community, this this working hard and and being able to achieve things because many of those people were, as you're saying, immigrants. And then um, and then be, with the war, there was a quote about her creating Rodeo as it was about Walter Love and Texas and the expanse and all of that. And what people were going to to war to fight for was this this freedom of this way of life and this very American thing. And um, so, yeah, she did because infusing that, just standing in the beginning of Rodeo, how many hours, you know, where she talked about how to push the broom of your hat up and really look and really see, really, really see that going for miles and miles and the sunset and that the feeling and the weight of, of the power of the land, um, what it can do. And then, then she had figured out with, you know, 14 years of working and so much failure, I think too, there's a sense of, of possibility and um, never giving up. Many people have commented the cowgirl really was Agnes. You know, she was spunky. She, um, I have a quote that Morton Gold um, that I recently saw and it said, Agnes gave the cowgirl an edge. She never became too coy or arch. You felt sympathy, liked her and smiled with her, were sad with her. And I think, you know, that's true. You get into this, this love 
for this little character who is so plucky and won't take no and just keeps trying. You know, she's trying. She's with all those men. And there she was in a choreographic place, like you like you had said, Linda, and it was all male choreographers. And now here was this voice. And through that sense of determination, and I get from the story she told me, you know, she was so proud of her family, but I can tell you, it was competitive. Whether they were playing tennis or they were competing, you know, in Hollywood with the DeMilles and the mayors, and she went to school with those other kids, you know, there was competition. She was competitive. And I think that kept her righted as well on her horse and, and keep trying to find these new voice, this new way where ballets could come from emotion and be displayed with gestures that everybody could relate to. So therefore you could be a part of it in a different yeah. way. There's, um, there's a wonderful video clip of her years later where she's she's in an evening dress and she's she's on a television show and she's talking about the gestures of Rodeo and how she sort of made the cowboys and all of a sudden she starts to inhabit the cowboy and she like swings back her her shoulders and she puts her legs apart and so she goes from being this very elegant woman in an evening dress to very very quickly you start to see a cowboy just emerge in front of you and then she uses contractions in her stomach when she's doing the horse movement in order to sort of get that forward propulsion and sense of urgency and then she breaks down the same step but removes the contraction and it completely shifts the idea she also told a funny story about when they went to russia and the Russians didn't know that the dancers were on horses because they had no frame of reference for Rodeo. They didn't get it. She had to tell she had to tell the Russian audiences afterwards, like, oh, these were cowboys and they were on horses. And... <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, I also think I love the moment where the cowgirl is completely still as everybody else passes by behind her. I feel like that's a that's a real power mo moment to make the character stand still. There's a, a certainty in that that non-movement and there's sort of an owning of the space that comes with that non-movement. It's sort of like she'd come into her own. I always really like that moment. In the I love that moment as well. And also when the girls, you know, Agnes, to me, she was brilliant at um, using spatial patterns. You know, she used a lot of circles. I think took a lot from folk dances and, you know, they're around for centuries. So something must have worked. I think she, you know, she worked with that, but there's that one moment where one of the Western ladies just uh, had to run in and do a little turn and then be there and then just breathing and her hands close together. And Agnes worked so much with the girls who would do that, that moment of, of how to capture and how it was so much bigger than just, you know, run, turn, down, breathe, 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 move your hands like this and, and walk off, but how it became that stillness of night and um, adding layer to, as you're saying, the cowgirl being there and moaning, moping, having her little pity party for a moment and the, and the wash of people going behind and then yeah. that breathing, it's just... Uh, I think it's powerful whether you saw it in 1940s, 1970s, or I think, you know, Ballet West just did it. And I'm sure it was a, a poignant yeah. moment. Well, it's rare to see a ballerina standing still. 
The, the, the only other big example I can think of it is another female choreographer, Bronislava Nizhinska in Les Nos. The bride is very, very still. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's unusual to have the ballerina be still. It's, it subverts the expectation of the audience. And it's interesting that two female choreographers chose to use it in a very powerful way within their work. Yeah, the only other aspect I can remember is just um, uh, Macmillan having Juliet Juliet. sit on the bed as all that music rages about. So she's just sitting there, but it's quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, And how powerful stillness and simplicity can be. The other thing, of course, that moment does is it gives you different kinds of women in the same scene, which is also a rarity in ballet. It gives you... And, and they're not women who are archetypes. It's not like that sort of there's the good and the bad. It's just different different types of personalities of women inhabiting the same space, which is it's also quite a novel thing to see in ballet. And that's a, another thing that I really appreciate about Rodeo and what the bell does is the variety and the complexity of the narratives that women are given within her work. It's like a ballet that passes the Bechdel test in eighteen. <laughs> Um, you two are making my job so easy. I had a whole string of questions about Rodeo that you have answered in a very comprehensive way. But let's talk about the other female characters that she created too, because there are many of them. Can you talk a little about what DeMille's female characters have in common and how they differed from the other women on ballet and Broadway stages at the time, especially? Well, I, I think the one that obviously comes to mind is uh, Full River Legend because it's an anti-heroine that we're rooting for. You know, we, we all know the, the story of Lizzie Borden and it's not that Agnes condones. In fact, she, she in an interview with Morton Gould, she talked about why they changed the, the story because Lizzie Borden was acquitted, but in the, in the ballet, she is hung and that's because Agnes believed that Lizzie Borden was guilty. Oh, I thought it was because Morton Gould couldn't um, compose a, uh, acquitted music. <laughs> <laughs> Agnes told him he was better at that. <laughs> but no, she, they both agreed that it made for a better ballet, uh, that it was, it was hard dramatically to choreograph and compose around the acquittal. And it was much easier choreographically and compositionally to work around a crescendo of, you know, some sort of act of justice being served. But what I find really interesting is, despite the fact that Agnes makes the ballet thinking Lizzie Borden's guilty, there's incredible empathy in the figure of Lizzie that she provides. And she said something really profound about, it was um, in Oliver Smith's set, well, she, she both loved and hated the set because she said the set gets in the way of the dancing, like that there's, it's an obstacle to a lot of choreographic movement happening. But she also loved the set for what it dramatically brought uh, to bear on the choreography. And particularly, she talks about the gallows receding into becoming part of the house so that you've, the gallows foregrounded at the beginning of the ballet and then it recedes into the house. And so Agnes said, it's like Lizzie's destiny is already set right from the beginning. There is this inescapable sense of like what's going to unfold, uh, which is really powerful and very, very poignant. And so I, what, I, what I really appreciate about Agnes taking on that part is it's not Lizzie the villain, 
or Lizzie, the, the victim who's accused and is innocent. It's a very complex female character with layers that we can feel lots and lots of things about, but our empathy with her and her journey is never lost through the choreography. Um, I know Agnes wasn't in love with her choreogra choreography overall. She felt that there wasn't enough variety uh, in the in the actual vocabulary of that particular ballet. But I do know she was very pleased with the dramatic qualities of that ballet. And I think she really did succeed in an, on, an, on a narrative um, and on a journey for, for Lizzie through the work. But I, Kathleen, you've danced that role. You've danced multiple roles in that ballet, but I indelibly think of you as being Lizzie in that ballet. Oh, that's very kind of you. I loved doing that character. I would have to say, I... I think you have make a really great point about if you look at the cowgirl and you look at Lizzie, that Agnes was able to create an empathetic character in both instances, de despite how disparate those actual characters are, one in adolescence, another in, you know, and out West, another in a very stuffy New England, um, you know, place. They're both vulnerable. They're both misfits and they're both looking for happiness. One manages to achieve it and the other um, clearly, clearly doesn't. Um, I think too, you know, when Agnes created, this is slightly off topic, but when Agnes created Rodeo, she was in a pretty hopeful place. She was going to be married. She, you know, she was, um, She'd had that, at least that mini success with Three Virgins and a Devil with ABT three years prior. She was starting to, uh, I, I feel, really feel comfortable and come into her own. Um, somebody recently told me that when she was um, making Fall River, she wasn't in as good a place. I'm not sure I would have to look at the years and I'm not the historian, but I know when her son was born, he was quite ill. They didn't know if she was going to, if he was going to make it. And, you know, maybe it, it revolved around a personal life issue like that. I'm not sure, but she was in a more chaotic and you can see in choice of story chosen and, and music um, defining that as well. When she got to the informer, however, I feel that character was not a misfit and Agnes was no longer a misfit. Um, she was successful, um, but she was a courageous woman who had just overcome so many obstacles after her stroke and was able to come back to it and into the character of the girl was this strong, you know, community person who then is faced with this terrible dilemma um, of what to do and choosing love over community. But again, it's a very complex figure and a very sympathetic figure, but also a, a figure with a flaw at the center, which is so, it's so, in, it's interesting dramatically. It's much more interesting than a purely good or a purely evil character is to have some, somebody complex on stage that you're trying to unravel and pick through as, as everything's unfolding. Don't you think all of her important women were flawed? You know, she yeah. always made the men so wonderful and perfect. And, you know, they each had. Yeah, and then... Nobody cares about them. <laughs> <laughs> but these girls, they all had something happening. Oh, it, it's it's a reversal of, of centuries of dramatic work where the men are always these central figures with, with deep inner lives. 
very complex, emotional, deep inner lives. And the women are just sort of surrounding satellites to serve the central narrative of the male protagonist. And with the male, we get the, the reverse, which for us as audience members is a really refreshing change. And as women, it allows us to see ourselves fully expressed within an art form that women predominantly work in and support. You know, Agnes's background, her her history of this extraordinary family that she grew up in, and then being in Hollywood, having these Sunday dinners where all these incredible people would come and it would just be, you know, if you weren't Charlie Chaplin of that level, you weren't the actor invited over. But she was uh, privy to hearing incredibly articulate people talking about all sorts of very important um, human uh, stories and how from that, who was telling all those stories? Again, it was men, but her great grandmother was groundbreaking, just formidable from everything I read about. And how many times did Agnes get to see the women in her life, her mother with the energy of a Titan um, making things happen. And so she had great, but she had no role models as a choreographer, she was such great friends with Martha, but Martha was doing something different and Martha knew it wasn't Agnes's gift and pushed her and pushed her to find her own way. But she didn't have somebody before her yeah. making it. Although, although to your point, Agnes's grandmother was one of the founders of Paramount Studios. So she, she had somebody who taught her how to carve out a career Mm. Um, although I absolutely agree with you, she didn't have a roadmap for how to express herself choreographically. There, there weren't, pre- there weren't many precedents for any woman working in ballet. There were not many precedents of female choreographers who had proceeded. I mean, I guess you had, just, you had Madame Placide just, yeah. in seven, 1792 was the first female choreographer that's documented in the United States for ballet. Um, and then you sort of have a gap. And, and then in the in the early 20th century, you have, you know, Bronislava Nijinska comes, you've got Agnes DeMille. And then we're still asking today, where are all the female choreographers? If you are a female choreographer working within the medium of ballet, there are still scant examples of how to forge a career and how to express yourself. There, there, there's not a substantial amount of work to build upon men are at an incredible advantage in that regard. And so it is extraordinary what she accomplished, even though she did come from a family of privilege and there were definitely people in the wider performing arts industry that could help her and guide her. But she did figure an awful lot out on her own. I completely agree with you, Kathleen. So in in some ways, DeMille's ballets do feel of a, a particular time, but in other ways, her work still feels keenly relevant today. Um, what do you think her ballets, and in particular the, the female characters in her in her works, can express in a contemporary context? Well, I think women are still fighting their corner and still looking for platforms to speak on their own terms. And so Agnes's characters remain relevant for us because even though they're set in different times, and quite, uh, quite frankly, when she was making the work, she was setting her work in different times. You know, Rodeo 
Fall River legend, the informer, all of those ballets are set in previous time periods than the time that she was contemporaneously living in, which actually lends her quite a timelessness. The fact that she didn't sort of make it of the moment of when she was choreographing gives the work a longer life because it, it's not of that particular zeitgeist. It lives outside of the, that moment and that zeitgeist. So it, it has relevance both before and after the moment in which it was made. So I, I, I think there's, there's that to her work, but also just we are still searching for complex, fully inhabited female characters on our stages. And so we still need Agnes's work because we do not have enough of them, particularly within the field of ballet. I think those are really beautiful and relevant points, Linda. I agree. A hundred percent. The only thing I would add to it is that um, when you look at, I'll just take the cowgirl. It It's about a time and a place, but it's about also, I think everything Agnes did came from emotion. And so that, that feeling of, of being human, of not fitting in, of reaching for connection and a sense of community. Those are you know, just four things that uh, jump out at me always with the cowgirl, with Rodeo. And every single one of them is relevant in 2023. I mean, I listening to Beethoven, Bach, composers who are centuries old on the radio, I don't find it irrelevant. I'm reading books, you know, I'll go read a Jane Austen novel and I don't expect everything, but you have to take it in the context. I mean, you know, when Agnes created um, even Rodeo, you know, if you didn't have a husband, you weren't going to have land. You weren't going to have security. You may not be able to put food on the table. So much was away. And, um, you know, today you can basically be anything you want to be. And um, I think she she pushed for that. I mean, in the cowgirl, she's being what she she thinks she wants to be. She's or she's trying and she can try anything. And so I do think that makes it relevant. I love those points. I, I think the other thing I've just been reflecting on is it's very much psychological terrain, the world of her ballets. In as much as it is, you know, specific to a location and a particular moment in time, the entire ballet often plays out in a way like we're inside the mind of the female protagonist. Particularly like if I think of Fall River Legend, it's a memory, it's a memory play, it's a memory ballet. I mean, from the moment she does that hand gesture. And also the foregrounding of, you know, we, we start at the end and then we work our way back. Right. We're in a, a psychological landscape in as much as we're in any sort of real landscape. And that also gives the, the ballet's longevity and gives them continued rele- relevance today because we're inhabiting a mind rather than inhabiting a moment in history. I was um, reading a piece that Joan Acachella wrote a few years ago, and it described DeMille's work at its best as achieving artistic justice. Um, I think she was specifically talking about Dance to the Piper, about her memoir, but I thought it sort of perfectly captured both something larger and something smaller about her gifts. She was making work that righted wrongs, and she was also getting in some good digs at like people and systems, too. Um, <laughs> Would you, would you agree with that idea of, of DeMille meeting out artistic justice? She does in her way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and as I said at the beginning, she's one of my favorite writers, and I'm sure Joan was referring to *Does the Piper*, which is uh, Agnes's memoir. It is a very entertaining read. Um, but yes, she does meet out her own version of social justice. I'm always very, very entertained by her um, friendship, frenemyship with Martha Graham. Uh, their letters to each other are fabulous. Um, you know, there's there's a sense in their letters to each other that they're both quite aware that they are of a stature where it's likely someday people beyond themselves will read their correspondence. So there's a full performance in each letter that they write to each other, it's over the top, like my darling, moi, like it's, it's <laughs> but there's always this like pattiness underneath it all. It's, I love it. It's wonderful. Wow. But no, she does. She, she certainly on behalf of women, I think she, she tries to right the wrong and carve out a space for women to hold on stage where their own stories can be told on their own terms rather than through the lens of a male choreographer. I have never danced Agnes's work like Kathleen does, but when I look at Agnes's work, I imagine it must be very liberating to inhabit some of those roles in a way that it, it would not be in other works. Yeah, it's uh, very freeing. And I think Agnes wasn't shy about her opinions. And um, I think she didn't tolerate uh, fools easily. And so, yes, she would meet out some artistic justice in, in the role she created, as we, we've already spoken about creating not two-dimensional, but very three-dimensional um, women, whether they're heroines or anti-heroines. And um, that is a bit of justice for women to have such meaty roles and um, complex ones. Well, thank you both so much for, for coming on, for giving us this excellent preview of the upcoming panel discussion at the library, which I'm really looking forward to. And you'll be in great company there, too. What a lineup for this panel. My goodness. It's quite a lineup. We have some wonderful dancers coming in as well to uh, perform some sections. So there will be archival film, uh, a fabulous panel that I'm moderating, which includes Kathleen, uh, and then uh, some young dancers who are very graciously giving their time so that we can experience some of Agnes's work live as well. So we're very excited about it. Listeners in the show notes will have links with all the information about that. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big thank you again to Kathleen and Linda. Really looking forward to that upcoming event at the library, which, as promised, you can find out more about in the show notes. It's happening on Monday, April 3rd. If you're in or around New York, you should definitely make your way to it. Hopefully I'll see you there. And thanks as ever to all of you for listening. We will be back next Thursday with a new episode discussing the top dance headlines. Until then, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.